and welcome to Dress Fancy, the only podcast about fashion, fantasy and fancy dress. I'm costume fanatic Lucy Clayton and I'm here with cultural historian Dr Benjamin Wilde to discuss a few of our favourite things. As regular listeners will know, this is a podcast about ordinary people in extraordinary outfits. And as always, you can see the images that accompany this conversation on our Instagram at Dress Fancy Podcast, along with other things that inspire us. And in today's episode, we are stepping back in time to examine a theme we've coincidentally touched on a couple of times this season, but we wanted to devote a show to it because of the surprising ways it pops up or lingers around in culture and in fashion specifically. Whether it's pre-Raphaelite beauty or the original Pearly King, modern steampunk or Japanese Lolitas, the Victorian era continues to fascinate and influence. We are all about costume drama here, and this episode takes us back to look at the roots of a theme that refuses to remain in the past. This is particularly pertinent at this time of year because so much of what we think of as classically Christmas takes its cues from a Victorian aesthetic. So Ben and I are here in full velvet cloaks and brocade detailing, (laughs) little fur collar, for this very special seasonal show. Now, Ben, I want to start in the most sensible place (laughs) for once. (laughs) <laughs> well, in the obvious place, and talk about Victoria herself mm. and her relationship with clothes, because that's actually a really rich territory, and it's also where this story should start. I think you're right. Victoria, in her loquacious diaries, writes a lot about her daily activities as a princess, and then obviously throughout much of her life as well. But within that, you have descriptions about what she's wearing, descriptions of people she meets. And also just the most sort of delicious sort of illustrations. Mm. And I think in her childhood, a big influence is the ballet, the opera. So although quite a traumatic childhood, she's seeing this wonderful, fantastic world. And I think that really is her sort of escape. Right. And I think throughout her life, in terms of fancy dress and costume and the festivities we're going to talk about in this episode, that's the sort of the route, I think, where she goes back to clothes, in a sense, transporting her to perhaps a better place. Mm. But does that mean, do you think that her taste had a theatrical leaning to it in terms of her sartorial taste, would you say? I think so. The indelible image probably that we all have in our mind of Queen Victoria is those images of her from 1861 as a widow. Mm. So looking like the sort of, in some ways, the sort of shape of the sort of Christmas pudding and then sort of (laughs) draped in black. But if you think about those garments... Okay, she's queen, but they are so richly embroidered, Mm. the different cloths and fabric. There is a theatricality there. So even though she is obviously mourning the loss Mm. of her beloved, the way that she plays that widow with just studded diligence, I think... I, I don't know. And it's know. not subtle, is it? No, You're it's right. not. It's, and it's I think quite, it, it is that, and, and the way she sort of berates members of her family, her children, for not showing sort of restraint and things, you do sort of think it's slightly hamming it up. Right. That, I, I mean, I, I don't know. It, I, I mean, for me at least, maybe it's in my own theatricality or um, <laughs> You're triviality. Projecting yeah, they, <laughs> there might be an element of that, but I just think she plays that role so superbly. Yes. Of, the of, ultimate of the, widow. Exactly. And. You're right, Christmas pudding is unkind, but uh, as a a silhouette, (laughs) it's not one that you (laughs) this year I'll be going for Christmas pudding. But but actually, if you distance yourself a little bit from that, and as you say, look at the detail Mm. of the clothes, of the garments, they are exquisite. Yes. 
Yeah. They're refined. It's almost hard to see that because mm. of the sort of, as you say, it's become a kind of a stock image, hasn't mm. it? But no, they're ridiculously beautiful. Mm. I love but a bit I, of but jet. I, yeah. <laughs> but I also think how she is stage managing that yeah. in terms of, again, after the death of Albert, so in 1861, there will often be sort of family gatherings or sort of public events where she might be sitting behind a screen or something. So she's in the room, but not. You know the royal presence, the empress herself is somewhere there, but, you know, she can see you, you can't see her. It's, it's all kind of those... Of creepy and sinister, yeah, but there are these, you know, as I said, it is a set piece. It is very stage managed. It is very controlled. And when she is dressing in the morning or being dressed, you can't almost help but think she's sort of getting into character. Mm. I'm going to play the widow again today and again and again and again. <laughs> um, Forever. Um, and I, I don't mean that in a sort of disrespectful way. I think there's mm. a personal way of her coping with her loss. Totally. I think that's psychologically really interesting. Mm. Like that wholehearted commitment mm. and never letting it go yeah. is absolutely, it's the behaviour of a heartbroken person. Yeah. But even when there are other characters, both political and personal, who become important to her in her life after Albert's death, still the widow mm. motif is played. And again, so I do think there is some sense of stage management of her very much curating. I know that word's overused, but curating mm. an image. So let's talk about Victoria and Albert and Christmas mm. then, because as I alluded to in the introduction, uh, responsible for a lot of things that we think of as completely traditional mm. and have always existed. But much like, <laughs> I always think it's much like Coca-Cola and the red Christmas Santa outfit, mm. actually they aren't sort of forever images. These no, are solid not. pieces of Victorian choices, aren't mm. they? And fashion, I think that's the thing. I mean, I do think of them when they were a younger couple as the ultimate trendsetters as yes. well to a certain extent. Mm much more so than today. And we've alluded in other episodes where the Duchess of Sussex is in a coat and it sells <laughs> overnight. It's not quite the same thing, is it? Because this is about almost their decisions and their traditions then forming mm. traditions forever after in culture yeah. here. That's a much bigger influence. I th- yeah, I think you're right. I mean, this could be almost the last time that the royal court in this country, possibly other countries as well, is very much setting not simply the sartorial, but also the the cultural pace and barometer. Yes. Thereafter, as you said, with the Duchess of Sussex, I was just reading this morning that she, in some recent fashion poll, has been voted the fashion fail of the year for her footwear. Not surprising. Just because the press can't, it just <laughs> can't, can't be nice for five minutes. To be honest, though, I mean, obviously it was a distillation to make that point, but some of the footwear choices she has made... Really? Yeah, tragic. Um. (laughs) Equally, I'm just going to just interject there. Challenging footwear circumstances quite often. So I think that should be allowed. Okay. So I'm conscious this is a Christmas episode. I've already made a dig at Victoria, now the Duchess of Sussex. I'm sorry. (laughs) If you could behave, that would be good. (laughs) Clearly I'm being typecast as Scrooge or something. Scrooge in the corner, (laughs) sartorial Scrooge. But no, but I think more broadly, I mean, you're right that the look of Christmas, how we celebrate it and know it today, is established during the Victorian period. And I think that owes a lot to Victoria being sort of in some ways besotted to Albert and Albert very much sort of taking the lead. But I think also Albert being in a tricky position because he is the husband, the sort of man of the household. So in the dynamic of the time, he would be the leading social political figure, Mm -hmm. except he's not because he's married to an anointed ruler. And there is always that tussle because not only is Albert obviously male, but he's male from a foreign country and... Obviously, that creates all sorts of issues. Mm. So I think 
there's a way that through cultural institution, through soft power, I suppose we I might see. call it okay. today, yes. he's maybe trying to use that sort of by the back door, as it were, establish his authority. So bringing over sort of traditions that he would be familiar with in Germany. So obviously the Christmas tree and that being perhaps the most obvious one. But I think more broadly, though, if we think about the 19th century, this is a period of huge European expansion, obviously the beginnings of empire and the, and the negative impacts of that, but where you've got so much discovery going yeah. on in terms and, and technological developments in terms of cameras. So now you can record those festivities. And as we've discussed in previous episodes, elements of cultural appropriation, mm-hmm. but these, the sense of the exotic and the, the wonderment that comes from that, all of that I think is being channeled in some ways into Christmas as it is evolving. Christmas is almost becomes, I think, that kind of crucible in which so many ideas of the Victorian mind, if I can say that everyone in the Victorian period had one mind, because <laughs> right, they didn't. Right. But it seems to me that you've got that harnessing of technology, that harnessing mm-hmm. of what it means to be British in, in a, at a time then, you know, these ideas of Britannia ruling the waves, waves everything's sort of coming into this big festivity. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons why we still vaunt celebrate it today because i think a lot of our traditions or the way we see ourselves as a country i mean as you said quite wrongly because this Mm. is quite a new relatively speaking tradition come back to this hijacked festivity if that makes sense but it's interesting that you say about albert and the soft power and all of these things because he was also an ambitious and progressive Mm, mind wasn't he so that tension of being someone who wants to embrace change Mm. and and I think quite often, you know, for the greater good, yes, yeah. but not being able to sort of do that, as you say, with the political force yeah. that he would be able to do if, were he in a different position. I find that really interesting alongside the idea that he's also aesthetically more, because my understanding is that he was the more aesthetically yes, minded, I guess. Yeah. And because he commissioned lots of jewellery for yes, her, he did, didn't yes. he? Ultimate romantic gesture. Mm. Note, Christmas <laughs> is coming. So Ben, if you want to, you know. Just, you know, commission. Yeah, little... you're not being subtle. I, I'm, no. <laughs> I, I understand exactly what you mean, yes. I'm looking forward to the big day is all I'm saying. <laughs> but no, the, the idea that he was the person who is almost styling mm. the two of them. Because, you know, to be a female ruler at that time, the image-making element mm. of that is a big deal. It has political yeah. weight. It has cultural weight. And the idea that he is the architect of some mm. of that, I find fascinating. But I think he... My sense is that he gets that partly because of his precarious position in some ways as a male in terms of this relationship where the female clearly has so much more power and authority, but also as a foreigner. Mm-hmm. So I think he's always, if you like, looking at things in third person. I see. He's that one step removed and therefore able so. to see it with yeah. clarity. But I also then think when Albert has then left the scene and going back to where we started in terms of thinking about the sort of black Christmas pudding, she then, I think, learns. And I think that's where we get that sort of stage management. And I think it's interesting. It's one of these sort of what ifs. But I always sort of think that had you not had this relationship where you do have Albert sort of stage managing to the same degree, would you have then had such a long, dramatic, pronounced period of mourning afterwards? I'm reading that slightly differently. As you're saying that, it makes me think if he was the architect of how they were visually put together and how that message was conveyed. And then after his death, she, as we've just said, steadfastly continues that one 
look? Ah. Is that because actually that is safer? If you have spent your married life, I'm going to yes. use a rubbish example, but okay. if you've spent your married life with your husband buying everything from Marks and Spencers, right? And you just, you're not interested and you're head to toe Marksies every day. I'm really struggling with this example. Then, yes, <laughs> it's not a great example. I'm, I'm sort of, let's, we'll play it out and we'll okay. see. We might retract it. But then, and then, you know, he dies. You definitely want to just keep buying the same thing from Marks and Spencers. You haven't exercised those muscles of self-expression, of taste, of any of those things. You have almost given them over. Would that be fair? So I wonder if there's comfort. Mm. The comfort in the morning garments, yes. I think, is more than just feeling close to to him. I think it's about comfort in repetition because she has lost yeah. someone who was of huge influence visually as well. I mean, that would work if we're thinking about the costume balls. Of course, Victoria stage three during her lifetime, 1842, 1845, 1851, no more. And okay, the last one is a decade before Albert's death, but bearing in mind how much in her diary she talks about fancy dress, costume again, going back to where we started with the ballet, the opera, the escapism, she loves it. Mm. But it's almost as though without that sort of quite literally sort of creative prop, the Albert there, it's just like, oh God, I don't know what to do. I don't have my director. Um, And so... Whilst, you know, in all of these events, as queen, she is the the star, she needs her director Mm. to bring that out, possibly. So I think that would work, actually. Because what then happens, you still have the sort of tableau vivant where you have set pieces, which are then staged in front of a camera, and they still happen to an extent at Osborne House, but it's more family-oriented. You you simply don't get the big, grand balls. Big show pieces, Yeah. yeah. And when, obviously, we've mentioned the Devonshire Ball of 1897, that's celebrating Victoria's Diamond Jubilee. But, of course, it's the Prince of Wales, later Edward VII, obviously, who attends. Victoria does not. No. So I, I, yeah, I think actually that 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 works well. I think is okay. a bit of theorising there. That, then. <laughs> yeah, do via Marks and Spencers. We got there in the end. Yeah, we're in difficult territory <laughs> when you mention Marks and Spencers. I was thinking, also, I haven't stepped foot in a Marks and Spencers for like twenty years. I was going to say, how on earth no could idea. that be a lifetime marriage? Maybe it just felt like one. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It shouldn't have lasted. <laughs> that was that's where I went immediately. <laughs> So, yeah, so in terms of those balls, 1842 is harking back to a sort of medieval period. And there's that wonderful sort of painting of Victorian Albert as Edward III and Isabella, so king and queen from the 14th century. And that was an event that had, I think from the reports at the time, sort of 2,000 attendees. So huge dramatic sort of set pieces. And, of course, again, in that portrait, the way that it's immortalised... Again, I think that's very much sort of Albert sort of saying, let's have something to capture this moment. And again, using that sort of soft power, but also, of course, him as a foreign consort, writing himself, grafting himself into his new nation's history and sort of poloining the sort of medieval period. 1845, quite interestingly, a Georgian-themed ball. I say interesting because, of course, Victoria's relations with her Georgian uncles, very, very problematic. But again, I think that might be a sort of sense of that is our recent past. So now we're going to put a Victorian spin on it. 
That um, reminds me of the Romanov ball mm. of a previous episode where it was recent enough that it felt almost yeah. a little bit uncomfortable. Yes, yeah. I mean, what sort of sort of family memories and associations must that have rekindled? It's slightly problematic. And then 1851, you might think sort of even more problematic still because it's a Reformation ball. So harking back to the Stuart dynasty, the Stuart dynasty, I think, well, certainly one of England's longest ruling dynasties, if not longest, but of course a dynasty where Mary, Queen of Scots, executed by Elizabeth I for plotting against her, Charles I, of course, beheaded, having been deemed a tyrant by his people, and James II being deposed. So not a, a dynasty that one would instantly... <laughs> Full of <laughs> Anyone would really think about. But I, again, I think trying to restore that moment or that period of rule and put a a new interpretation on it. So these are all, you know, those three episodes, which I think we'll need to talk about in, in, in more detail later episodes. Yes, so we should, um, we, should say, we, should, we should definitely do a devoted, because this is almost sort of setting the broader scene, isn't it? Yeah. But we do need to do a forensic analysis of who wore what for each of those three balls. So don't worry, listener. We'll leave you hanging now, actually, <laughs> yeah. but then, but we will return to it because we must do the costume porn element of those yeah, things. Definitely. I wonder, I'm thinking as you're talking, there is something about taking a perhaps dodgy period mm. of recent history or, or even not recent yeah. history and as you say almost reclaiming it yeah. as a festivity as a grand ball that does slightly rehabilitate doesn't it exactly so it's almost like we're going to clean this idea mm. up it's now it's a party theme it's sort yeah. of i wonder if there's an element of that where in this period of empire building and mm. you know power and ownership over yeah. as far as the eye can see it feels like it's that sense of trying to reclaim history and say it's all all right now. Uh, yeah, I think it's exactly that. Because if you were to sort of say, okay, we've got some parties planned, we need a theme. These are not necessarily the most obvious themes. Yeah. So I think you're right. There is something very strategic and very conscious that's going on here. And I think it's it is... It's almost for- like they've put moments in history where <laughs> the sorts of moments where at the time people said, one day we'll laugh about this. <laughs> That's what it's making me think of. You know, I, I think you're right. And, and, and then, yeah, very consciously rebranding them. Yeah. And again, I think, coming back to your point, it is, I would argue, very much Albert that we're seeing here doing this in terms of perhaps picking these moments rather than a Victorian voice that we see here. Right. One clothing question, just because I am desperate to ask it. In her diaries, at the time of these balls... Yeah. Just to name drop, but I was at a party with A.N. Wilson. <laughs> I was telling him about the podcast and he was saying, oh gosh, you know, you must do Queen Victoria's Balls. Mm. And he told me a story where he was saying that there was one outfit in particular that she wrote about Al. Basically, she just really fancied Albert in the costume. Do yes. We, which one is that? Do we know? That is... Because I was the, hammered, so I can't remember what he, what he told me and I was too drunk I, I to remember. I think it's the 1842. I think it's when he's sort of dressed up to the nines in a sort of medieval style Although, again, that might be just me be um, projecting in terms of, th- <laughs> you know, thinking about the portrait in my head. But oh, no, because there's definitely another occasion when much earlier, I think before they were married and she sees him dressed in his tight uniform and she does go a little bit... She swoons. Weak at the knees in terms of her writing. Yeah. Because that, again, is the thing. I mean, we, we have that sort of <laughs> archetypal view of her being the perpetual widow. No, I think of it as a story of young love. Well, no, that's what I mean. But I, I think we, when we think of Victoria, I mean, as I said, I have this sort of black Christmas pudding in my head. But I think earlier on in her life, even before her reign started, you know, slightly frisky. Yes. 
And some of her clothes are still at Kensington Palace. There's definitely something of his. Yes, yeah. And there's a couple of, I mean, obviously not much, but it's amazing to see those because they're obviously tiny, mm. but the silhouette is such a different silhouette oh, to the one that you think is a sort of, you know, cruise liner size. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, and I'm being horrible saying Christmas pudding. Well, you were just rubbing off on me. I was being... <laughs> you're a bad influence uh, but they are worth seeing aren't they because, oh, and actually I think the whole we should say that at Kensington Palace the way they have structured the way as visitors now you walk through the rooms mm. telling the story of the young exactly. Victoria is really beautiful yeah. it's brilliantly done and you can imagine her those rooms I think look incredibly modern and partly because mm. you know they're off Kensington High Street so you sort of They'll do true. It's a bizarre yeah, a... thing where you're sort of at TK Maxx and then suddenly you're in, you know, her childhood nursery. I'm really worried about you. <laughs> what have I been doing? Marks and Spencer, TK Okay, we need to have a conversation off air. Time to I'm not actually also Time's worried about hard. my Christmas present. Where are you getting it from? <laughs> I'm hoping that you're going to call Fabergé on your way home for me. Well, not bloody well not. <laughs> All right, we need to move on to the second segment of yes. this episode, which is, of course, Dickens. Mm. The reason we're talking about Dickens is not as an author, although obviously huge influence, and again, hugely part of yeah. defining the, vi- mm. the way we think, visually the way we think yeah. of the Victorian period, of course. But my favourite thing about Dickens is his love of Amdram. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't love Amdram? Oh, Ben. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just thinking we're getting the Lucy Clayton I know back. <laughs> <laughs> I've perched right up. Um, he was, of course, unusual as a novelist at the time mm. for public readings and starting with doing all of a Christmas Carol in 1853 and it being this overnight sensation. Mm. And Simon Callow talks about that being, it's almost impossible for us to understand what a big deal this was. He talks about them being like rock concerts. Yeah. So obviously big tours here in the UK and then in the US. He wore evening dress for those, not costume, but then obviously became each and every character yeah. and embodied to such a degree. Obviously, he wanted to be an actor originally. Mm. Thank God he didn't become that. Can you imagine how bereft we would be mm. generally if he hadn't failed to become that, yes. to yeah. realise that dream? It's also a very good example that don't give up on your dreams. That is true. Because yes. eventually you might be you know, <laughs> doing stadium gigs in the US with your novel. So even the greatest actors of the day admired his performances in terms of the extent to which mm. he was able to truly embody all these multiple characters. And people were screaming, they were fainting. It just sounds beyond brilliant. I just think it sounds like you're describing the reaction weekly to our podcast. <laughs> Well, I, I actually did think maybe with our books on the horizon, well, Ben, yeah. we could just do some major public readings where people faint. I think it's the least we could do, Lucy, frankly. Public think, I service. I there's any bit of my book where, that would make someone faint. I could rewrite some sections. Yes. Yeah, become yeah. a little bit scarier. <laughs> That's going to be hard, but I'll work on okay. it. Anything uh, for the sale. Yeah. <laughs> anything for the sale. He was, of course, at the time, the most famous man in the world which is, again, quite difficult for us. To, there isn't really an equivalent no, you're right, now. Uh, and even the greatest fiction authors aren't, I mean, they're still big tickets, yeah. but not this, I think this is a sensation. It's, the way you've got to think about it is in terms of the scale of it. Mm. And of course, what it did was give it this very personal and direct relationship with his readers, mm. which of course is 
an extraordinarily clever yeah. way of garnering loyalty. But before all of that, because I think that's what we think about when we think about Dickens and performance. And of course, Simon Callow being the Dickens <laughs> back from the dead, yeah. an entire career. Yeah, that is so true. <laughs> but before all of that, he wrote a couple of burlesque plays. The best bit was that he used to perform them was with himself and his family. I didn't and, know it was with his family. Yeah, yeah, like roping in friends and family. And it wasn't until 1842, because obviously having not become an actor properly, yeah. around 1842, so he's 30 now, then the urge to get back yeah. on the stage seized him. And so he did this sort of, they're described as kind of very high level amateur performance, not dissimilar to everything I've ever done, <laughs> I have to say. Don't want to mention Mask of the Red Death again. <laughs> A-level drama. But, you know, it was his friends mm. and a cast of famous painters and writers and basically okay. anyone that he could rope into doing it. And he himself, of course, was a huge... He sort of tended to do the comic roles, I think, at this point. But the best bit is that he had this kind of theatre space in the schoolroom of his house at Tavistock House, which was converted into a theatre for small performances. Oh. I've been trying to think where we could do that here. Mm. A little bit tight, but the idea that there's sort of the Dickens amateur troupe, and we could, and of course Love they performed that. twice for Queen Victoria and Albert, and mm. she raved about it, loved it. But what I love about this idea is there he is churning out these books before the big reading tours, and he's kind of actor, stage manager. He's adjusting scenes. They're thinking about costumes. They're devising playbills. Mm. Like it really is a kind of let's put on a show in a barn, yeah. yes. which I just. <laughs> think is completely charming and also we know that he was a client of nathan's costume house so established mm. 1790 that should also be something we do an episode yes. on and obviously they supplied costumes for balls and fancy dress and proper professional performances yeah. but amateur performance mm. as well so again i just love that and i was thinking about you know, there is something so charming about someone who is so obviously impressive at mm. what they do calling anything that they do amateur. But of course, actually, the output was clearly of a professional exactly, quality. Yeah. Queen Victoria had said that you know, she remembered it as the greatest performance she'd ever seen in theatre, which was the, the one mm. of the Wilkie Collins that yeah. they did. They're clearly absolutely delivering, mm. but sort of like, come and see our amateur show. And I just think that's <laughs> adorable. But of course, that's obviously what the word amateur means. It just, yeah, it's, it's exactly. for the love of yeah, it. Yeah, exactly that. I hadn't thought about that in a long time. And I found that just mm. really... Really wonderful. And then, of course, the sad bit is that his last, his final reading, so cut to, yeah. he's this kind of god of the stage. <laughs> but the last reading, he was very frail. And I think this is the saddest thing. He, he, he said, from the earliest days of my career down to this proud night, I have always tried to be true to my calling. I hope that my public believe that I have, as a writer, in my soul and conscience, tried to be as true to them as they have ever been to me. From these garish lights, I vanish now forevermore with a heartfelt, grateful, respectful and affectionate farewell. <laughs> oh, I've got tingles Isn't down my moving? spine. That's and then he came so on stage tender. and sobbed. I know, I actually do feel a bit tearful. I do. Oh. Also, I mean, definitely got away with words, hasn't he? <laughs> he has. <laughs> but no, I mean, Wishing to state the obvious. <laughs> I just thought that was really moving. You know, writing is a very solitary pursuit. And I wonder if there is something about mm. the act of performing is so the opposite of that. To have yeah. love shone back at you yes. from the audience might be something that is necessary to that creative process when the rest of it is as we know, locked in a darkened room alone, yes. writing word yeah. after word after word. I don't know. I wonder if that's, he no, clearly think, yeah, was so close to his audience mm. and so respectful of their yeah. love. Anyway, Aww. legend. 
Bless him. So yes. But we must do an episode about Nathan's costume. Oh no, I agree with that. So I'd put that on the list, don't okay. we? We're joined by Dominic Collingridge, Penhaligon's education manager and brand ambassador. Dom, it's like we've stepped back in time to Victorian London here in Burlington Arcade today. And there are so many stories to tell about this place and the drama of Victorian London. Can you reveal some of them? Absolutely. Well, I mean, the arcade as a space inhabited by certain individuals, it wasn't only beautiful boutiques such as ours, which we've had since the 1980s, but the upper floors of the arcade were frequented by... um, What's the appropriate way to say this? (laughs) Ladies of the night. Ladies of ill repute, perhaps. Okay. Who, who you could say in that period would have been fairly well-centred, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so um, there was a very specific clientele and there were more things than just... Uh... <laughs> Lots of wares. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, this was manned by the Beatles, the marvellous uh, police force of Burlington Arcade, uh, who have a number of different rules, one of them of which is no whistling, and that's because... The ladies upstairs would whistle down to the pickpockets and try and distract people from wandering around, you know, keeping hold of their pocketbooks. Whilst, wow, this uh, is proper Oliver Twist Absolutely, territory. yeah. So it was, uh, it was quite an interesting space, not nowhere near as decadent as it is in this day and age. So we mustn't accidentally whistle, we'll get told absolutely, off. Absolutely, you'll get told off, yeah. <laughs> You're not allowed to run either or have your umbrella I've up. I've never run, Dom, so that's absolutely of fine. Course. It's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> We're now going to bring this narrative um, startlingly <laughs> back up to date, um, <laughs> but still staying with this sort of Victoriana motif. And as you said at the outset, demonstrating the sort of longevity of this theme by travelling across several seas and oceans to Japan and thinking about the Japanese Lolita theme in terms of dressing. And I suppose the first thing that needs to be said is that this term is a little bit of a misnomer. Yes. It's first used and applied to what we're talking about in terms of dress and sort of public performance in 1987. But of course, it is a term that comes from a character or indeed the title character of Vladimir Nabukov's 1955 book, which focuses on essentially underage sexual activities where a older guy is sort of grooming a young girl. So that is not at all what we're talking about. No, and it's super important to say that, isn't it? Because I think that's quite difficult for a Western audience to disassociate Mm. from that because it's such a powerful... I mean, that word is so loaded. Exactly. And rightly so. But here we are not talking about that. So in Japan, it means almost like cast that aside from your mind and instead think about cuteness and demureness Mm. and elegance. But you've, uh, in saying that, you've got exactly the right point because in Japan, this idea of cuteness is very prevalent. It is more broadly culturally accepted in a way that in the West it just isn't. Yeah. And so in using the term Lolita to describe this sort of sartorial subculture, there is very much a sort of essence of it being lost in translation. Yes. So effectively then, what are we talking about when we think about Lolita sartorial theme? We're thinking about women who dress in a very self-consciously Victorian-inspired form of clothing. And some of the sort of iconic elements of that clothing would be, for example, a skirt.
skirt that might be reminiscent of the crinoline Mm -hmm. with petticoats, the skirt being sort of bell or A-shaped. There'll be a wig and bonnet, possibly bows as well. And generally speaking, the Lolita sort of subculture or the category, if you like, breaks down into sort of three variants, gothic, classic and sweet. So gothic were... Which one are you, Ben? I think it depends very much on my mood. Of late, possibly more gothic. Um, <laughs> but I think actually I could pull off sweet very oh, convincingly. Okay, that's fine. fine. God, you seem surprised, Lucy. Well, I was. I thought you were going to go firm gothic, but that's fine. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, and yourself? I think I'm too old for all of them, I'll be honest. I was just going to say a bit too frumpy for Marks and Spencer. <laughs> oh, you can't buy this in Marks and Spencer, you're right. So unfortunately, it's not for me. Okay, so don't mention Marks and Spencer again. Well, you brought it up. <laughs> So I feel like it's tainting the whole of my fashion icon status. Importantly, though, the perfect detailing, the parasols, the lace, Mm. which reminds me of talking about Victoria's, the detail on there. Yes, exactly that. Detail is super important. But the scale of it is twisted, if you like, for a modern audience. So although it might be a crinoline shape, it's short, although not exposing because well, the demureness is important so it's not it exposing really lots is, of because i think flesh. that's the point when you think of the ladies who dress in the lolita mode very little skin actually is on yeah. show at all arms legs are covered yeah. so they might have a relatively short skirt which might be knee height or above but they will then have tights or, or, or certainly leg coverings and most of their sort of tops will come down to the wrists and again when we were talking about in our previous episode that touched on Japan when we were doing the manga conversations, there is a graphic nature to Mm, this, which is very much that brilliant Japanese style of distilling the core of an idea and making it graphically very visual. Mm. So although it's really detailed, the colour choice is very strong. The shapes are very sharp. Mm. They're not... So although it's frilly, it does look really modern. Yeah, and I and I think that's true because I think a lot of it in terms of what's the motivation here, I suppose two strands. One is that there is a desire, and why particularly the Victorian period, a desire to go back in interviews. This is what various ladies who, who are addressing as leaders say. When you are being treated and respected for being a woman... And I think it's quite interesting that they they see it in that way. So again, this sort of demureness is about a kind of wider personal, but also um, sort of public respect. But they also do say that it is a reaction to social roles and expectations, particularly gendered expectations Mm. of women, and trying to, I suppose, subvert that narrative where it's essentially themselves, their bodies, their agenda, rightly so, rather than anyone trying to suggest how that narrative should pan out for them. And it isn't an easy look to adopt. It's not something you can casually dabble in. I think that's really important to say. So there is a sort of impressive commitment to this theme. This is not a bit like, oh, I've got a little bit of ribbon detail. This is a head-to-toe immersively committed look and the lifestyle that accompanies it is really interesting because quite often if you are into this then you're not drinking coffee or you know you behave in a way so it is a I guess a lifestyle choice as much as it is a visual choice if that makes sense yes and I think you're right I mean it is also very much a group activity if we're thinking about the liters then it is about them coming together as a community. And so I was watching something in just sort of terms of preparing for this episode. There's a very large Lolita community in Amsterdam, for example. Right. And again, they talk very much about the sense that they will meet, they will 
sort of travel in public together. So there is that sort of sense of, I suppose, group solidarity, which again, which sort of... Yeah, we've encountered that multiple times. Yeah. That how It's almost like brought together through dress, yeah. remain together through lots of other reasons. Exactly. And it feels very much about community. There's mm. also obviously RuffleCon in Connecticut yes. where everyone does it together. So again, it's something that of course has its roots in Japanese fashion subculture, but that has grown uh, enormously. I think it's interesting to talk about the use of the word subculture in relation to that. This is a really good example where something might start as a street style and it might start yes. as a sort of underground, but now is so prevalent. Mm. And so, and you know, there are huge brands that you can buy from. Yeah. Obviously, I've spent some time looking at that, <laughs> but light in the box, you yes. can just order yeah. your full works. Mm. Obviously, I was super tempted. <laughs> but and- remember, there was a sale on at Marks and Spencer. <laughs> Oh God, I'm so uncool in this episode. Stop it, Ben. Um, you can order it, and and then it arrives, box fresh, like full yeah. head to toe. And I that then doesn't feel like a subculture, does it? No, it is interesting because we do use this term. It's a term that's often used to describe, or frequently used to describe, um, elite. But that idea of sub meaning below, under, and sort of connotations of somehow minority, less than. And so, you know, maybe sort of pejorative associations. But I think actually that this is something, as with a lot of the other themes that we've discussed on this show, is actually very liberating, it's positive, and hugely important to those people who are engaged in it because it's enabling them to express themselves in a way that otherwise they wouldn't be able to. And I love, I personally am very interested in self-expression within and a concept that has its own rigid rules yes. within it. I think that is fascinating because you could argue that you know, the ultimate self-expression is anything goes, mm. go wild. But actually, I think it's a much more interesting place where you are interpreting a theme yes. in a way that is a theme that also is shared by other people. Mm. That's where the community bit grows, doesn't it? Because yeah. you're not just all wearing something that's mad and wacky. You are within the confines of a sort of agreed set of parameters, mm. able to play with this, mm. with how that is yeah. rendered. And I think that requires more creativity than I think so, total yeah, freedom. Absolutely. Because, you know, in terms of globally, if, I mean, I suppose if we're thinking of this being more prevalent in the West, but the idea that, you know, you can pretty much wear what you want, styles of dress that would have conventionally been separated by chronology, culture and status now or all yeah. in the mix together. Yeah. So unless you're buying into, involving yourself in a subculture, to use that term again, you don't really have those rules. No. So yeah, it's only in a sense where you're maybe getting involved in a sartorial sort of form like this, where you have rules that, as you said, paradoxically, you can be creative. Yes, exactly. Um, which is interesting. You know that question, who would be your ultimate dinner party guest, mm. dead or alive? I've just, I'm, I never have an answer to that question. I've just decided who it is. Ooh. I would love to have Queen Victoria alongside a Lolita. Can Ooh. you imagine that would be interesting? That conversation. Particularly if you had a Gothic Lolita and she was dressed in black. Yes, oh, I'd want the whole selection. I'd want a representative oh, selection. Oh, one of each. Okay. Yes, because I think I would love to see. <laughs> imagine your sort of fashion legacy, the legacy of your period. Yeah. See how crazy Gosh, it is that it exists so yeah. now actually there isn't i mean we've talked about how it's obviously more graphic and all of this yeah. but actually victorian dolls are a yeah, huge exactly. influence aren't they? Yes. So they, they are almost perfect copies mm. of 
a so much older idea. Imagine being confronted with that, how mind-blowing that would be. Well, as you said that, with reference to dolls, of course, Victoria did have, she would you know, buy dolls and then dress them herself. So I, again, I wonder to what extent it would be a case of, you know, her dolls come to life almost. Yes. Um, <gasps> ben, this is another short story. It's getting meta, isn't it? It's more so than normal. Meta. I think we should, I think we should shut this down. It's got oh. a bit, it's got a bit fantasy. <laughs> Links to the things that we've discussed are in our show notes and head to at Dress Fancy Podcast on Instagram to see the images that we've referred to today and to discover how you can take part in this week's competition to win treats from our partner, Pen Halligans. Thank you to Mark, our editor, to Pen Halligans for supporting this project and for all of you for listening. We're taking a break until the new year when we'll be back. And in the meantime, if you like what we do, please share that with someone you love for Christmas. <laughs> the ultimate Christmas present a podcast recommendation. Subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts because it really does help new listeners to find us. We wish you a very happy festive season. Join us next time for more costume drama. Bye.